The Dance of Death Brown went to the dance, feeling genuinely depressed, for the doctor had just warned him that his heart was weak and that he must be exceedingly careful in the matter of exertion. Dancing? he asked, with that assumed lightness some natures affect in the face of a severe shock, the plucky instinct to conceal pain. Well, in moderation, perhaps, hummed the doctor. Not wildly, he added, with a smile that betrayed something more than professional sympathy. At any other time, Brown would probably have laughed, but the doctor's serious manner put a touch of ice on the springs of laughter. At the age of twenty-six, one hardly realizes death. Life is endless. It is only old people who have hearts and such-like afflictions. So it was that the professional dictum came as a real shock, and with it, too, as a sudden revelation, came that little widening of sympathy for others that is part of every deep experience as the years roll up and pass. At first he thought of sending an excuse. He went about carefully, making the buses stop dead before he got out and going very slowly up steps. Then, gradually, he grew more accustomed to the burdens of his dread secret, the commonplace events of the day, the hated drudgery of the office where he was an underpaid clerk, the contact with other men who bore similar afflictions with assumed indifference, the fault-finding of the manager, making him fearful of his position. All this helped to reduce the sense of first alarm, and instead of sending an excuse, he went to the dance, as we have seen, feeling deeply depressed and moving all the time as if he carried in his side a brittle glass globe that the least jarring might break into a thousand pieces. The spontaneous jollity natural to a boy and girl dance served, however, to emphasize vividly the contrast of his own mood and to make him very conscious again of his little hidden source of pain. But though he would gladly have availed himself of a sympathetic ear among the many there whom he knew intimately, he nevertheless exercised the restraint natural to his character and avoided any reference to the matter that bulked so largely in his consciousness. Once or twice he was tempted but a prevision of the probable conversation that would ensue stopped him always in time. Oh, I am so sorry, Mr. Brown, you mustn't dance too hard, you know. And then his careless laugh as he remarked that it didn't matter a bit and his little joke as he whirled his partner off for another spin. He knew, of course, that there was nothing very sensational about being told that one's heart was weak. Even the doctor had smiled a little and he now recalled more than one acquaintance who had the same trouble and made light of it. Yet it sounded in Brown's life a note of profound and sinister gloom. It snatched beyond his reach at one fell swoop all that he most loved and enjoyed, destroying a thousand dreams and painting the future a dull, drab color without hope. He was an idealist at heart, hating the sordid routine of the life he led as a business underling. His dreams were of the open air, of mountains, forests, and great plains, of the sea, and of the lonely places of the world. Wind and rain spoke intimately to his soul, and the storms of heaven as he heard them raging at night round his high rooms in Bloomsbury stirred savage yearnings that haunted him for days afterward with the voices of the desert. Sometimes, during the lunch hour, when he escaped temporarily from the artificial light and close air of his high office stool to see the white clouds sailing by overhead and to hear the wind singing in the wires, it set such a fever in his blood that for the remainder of the afternoon he found it impossible to concentrate on his work and thus exasperated the loud-voiced manager almost to madness. 
Having no expectations and absolutely no practical business ability, he was fortunate, however, in having a place at all, and the hard fact that promotion was unlikely made him all the more careful to keep his dreams in their place, to do his work as well as possible, and to save what little he could. His holidays were the only points of light in an otherwise dreary existence, and one day, when he should have saved enough, he looked forward vaguely to a life close to nature, perhaps a shepherd on a hundred hills, a dweller in the woods, within sound of his beloved trees and waters where the smell of the earth and campfire would be ever in his nostrils, and the running stream always ready to bear his boat swiftly away into happiness. And now the knowledge that he had a weak heart came to spoil everything. It shook his dream to the very foundations. It depressed him utterly. Any moment the blow might fall, it might catch him in the water swimming, or halfway up the mountain, or midway in one of his lonely tramps just when his enjoyment depended most upon his being reckless and forgetful of bodily limitations. That freedom of the spirit in the wilderness he so loved. He might even be forced to spend his holiday, to say nothing of the dreams of the far future, in some farmhouse, quietly. The thought made him angry with pain. All day he was haunted and dismayed, and all day he heard the wind whispering among branches, and the water lapping somewhere against sandy banks in the sun. The dance was a small subscription affair hastily arranged and happily informal. It took place in a large hall that was used in the daytime as a gymnasium, but the floor was good and the music more than good. Foils and helmets hung round the walls, and high up under the brown rafters were ropes, rings, and trapezes coiled away out of reach, their unsightliness further concealed by an array of brightly colored flags. Only the light was not of the best, for the hall was very long, and the gallery at the far end loomed in a sort of twilight that was further deepened by the shadows of the flags overhead. But its benches afforded excellent sitting-out places where strong light was not always essential to happiness, and no one dreamed of finding fault. At first he danced cautiously, but by degrees the spirit of the time and place relieved his depression and helped him to forget. He had probably exaggerated the importance of his malady. Lots of other fellows, even as young as he was, had weak hearts and thought nothing of it. All the time, however... There was an undercurrent of sadness and disappointment, not to be denied. Something had gone out of life. A note of darkness had crept in. He found his partners dull, and they no doubt found him still duller. Yet this dance, with nothing apparently to distinguish it from a hundred others, stood out in his experience with an indelible red mark against it. It is a common trick of nature, and a profoundly significant one— that just when despair is deepest, she waves a wand before the weary eyes and does her best to awaken an impossible hope. Her idea presumably being to get her victim going actively to the very end of the chapter, lest through indifference he should lose something of the lesson she wishes to teach. Thus it was that, midway in the dance, Brown's listless glance fell upon a certain girl, whose appearance instantly galvanized him into a state of keenest possible desire. A flash of white light entered his heart and set him all on fire to know her. She attracted him tremendously. She was dressed in pale green and always danced with the same man, a man about his own height and coloring whose face, however, he could never see properly. They sat out together much of the time, always in the gallery where the shadows were deepest. The girl's face he saw clearly, and there was something about her that simply lifted him bodily out of himself and sent strange thrills of delight coursing over him like shocks of electricity. 
Several times their eyes met, and when this happened he could not tear his glance away. She fascinated him, and all the forces of his being merged into a single desire to be with her, to dance with her, to speak with her, to know her name. Especially he wondered who the man was she so favored. He reminded him so oddly of himself. No one knows precisely what he himself looks like, but this tall, dark figure, whose face he could never contrive to see, started the strange thought in him that it was his own double. In vain he sought to compass an introduction to this girl. No one seemed to know her. Her dress, her hair, a certain wondrous slim grace made him think of a young tree waving in the wind, of ivy leaves, of something that belonged to the life of the woods rather than to ordinary humanity. She possessed him filling his thoughts with wild woodland dreams. Once, too, he was certain that when their eyes met, she smiled at him, and the call was so well-nigh irresistible that he almost dropped his partner's arm to run after her. But it seemed impossible to obtain an introduction from anyone. "'Do you know who that girl is over there?' he asked one of his partners while sitting out a square dance, half exhausted with his exertions. "'The one up there in the gallery? In pink?' No, the one in green, I mean. Oh, next the wallflower lady in red. In the gallery, not under it, he explained impatiently. I can't see up there, it's so dark, returned the girl after a careful survey through glasses. I don't think I see anyone at all. It is rather dark, he remarked. Why, do you know who she is? she asked foolishly. He did not like to insist. It seemed so rude to his partner, but this sort of thing happened once or twice. Evidently, no one knew this girl in green, or else he described her so inaccurately that the people he asked looked at someone else instead. In that green, sort of ivy-looking dress, he tried another. With the rose in her hair and the red nose, or the one sitting out? After that, he gave it up finally. His partner seemed to sniff a little when he asked. Evidently, La Désirée was not a popular maiden. Soon after, too, she disappeared, and he lost sight of her. Yet the thought that she might have gone home made his heart sink into a sort of horrible blackness. He lingered on much later than he intended in the hope of getting an introduction, but at last, when he had filled all his engagements, or nearly all, he made up his mind to slip out and go home. It was already late, and he had to be in the office that hateful office, punctually at nine o'clock. He felt tired, awfully tired, more so than ever before at a dance. It was, of course, his weak heart. He still dawdled a little while, however, hoping for another glimpse of the sylph in green, hungering for a last look that he could carry home with him and perhaps mingle with his dreams. The mere thought of her filled him with pain and joy, a sort of rarefied delight he had never known before. But he could not wait forever, and it was already close upon two o'clock in the morning. His rooms were only a short distance down the street. He would light a cigarette and stroll home. No, he had forgotten for a moment without a cigarette. The doctor had been very stern on that point. He was in the act of turning his back on the whirl of dancing figures when the flags at the far end of the room parted for an instant in the moving air and his eye rested upon the gallery just visible among the shadows. A great pain ran swiftly through his heart as he looked. There were only two figures seated there, the tall, dark man who was his double, and the ivy girl in green. She was looking straight at him, down the length of the room, and even at that distance he could see that she smiled. He stopped short. The flags waved back up and hid the picture, 
but on the instant he made up his mind to act. There, among all this dreary crowd of dancing dolls, there was someone he really wanted to know, to speak with, to touch. Someone who drew him beyond all he had ever known and made his soul cry aloud. The room was filled with automatic lay figures, but here was someone alive. He must know her. It was impossible to go home without speech, utterly impossible. A fresh stab of pain, worse than the first, gave him momentary pause. He leaned against the wall for an instant just under the clock, where the hands pointed to two, waiting for the swooning blackness to go. Then he passed on, disregarding it utterly. It supplied him, in truth, with the extra little impetus he needed to set the will into vigorous action, for it reminded him forcibly of what might happen. His time might be short. He had known few enough of the good things in life. He would seize what he could. He had no introduction but to the devil with the conventions. The risk was nothing. To meet her eyes at close quarters. To hear her voice. To know something of the perfume of that hair and dress. What was the risk of a snub compared to that? He slid down the side of the long room, dodging the dancers as best he could. The tall man, he noted, had left the gallery the girl sat on alone. He made his way quickly up the wooden steps, light as air, trembling with anticipation. His heart beat like a quick padded hammer, and the blood played a tambourine in his ears. It was odd that he did not meet the tall man on the stairs, but doubtless there was another exit from the gallery that he had not observed. He topped the stairs and turned the corner. By Jove, she was still there, a few feet in front of him, sitting with her arms upon the railing, peering down upon the dancers below. His eyes swam for a moment, and something clutched at the very roots of his being. But he did not hesitate. He went up quite close, past the empty seats, meaning to ask naturally and simply if he might beg for the pleasure of a dance. Then, when he was within a few feet of her side, the girl suddenly turned and faced him, and the words died away on his lips. They seemed absolutely foolish and inadequate. Yes, I am ready, she said quietly, looking straight into his eyes. But what a long time you were in coming. Was it such a great effort to leave? The form of the question struck him as odd, but he was too happy to pause. He became transfigured with joy. The sound of her voice instantly drowned all the clatter of the ballroom, and it seemed to him the only thing in the whole world. It did not break on the consonants like most human speech. It flowed smoothly. It was the sound of wind among branches, of water running over pebbles. It swept into him and caught him away so that for a moment he saw his beloved woods and hills and seas. The stars were somewhere in it too, and the murmur of the plains. By the gods, here was a girl he could speak with in the words of silence. She stretched every string in his soul and then played on them. His spirit expanded with life and happiness. She would listen gladly to all that concerned him. To her he could talk openly about his poor broken heart, for she would sympathize. Indeed, it was all he could do to prevent himself running forward at once with his arms outstretched to take her. There was a perfume of earth and woods about her. Oh, I am so awfully glad, he began lamely, his eyes on her face. Then, remembering something of earthly manners, he added, My name, er, uh, is... Something unusual, something indescribable in her gesture stopped him. She had moved to give him space at her side. Your name... She laughed, drawing her green skirts with a soft rustle like leaves along the bench to make room. But you need no name now, you know. Oh, the wonder of it. She understood him. 
He sat down with a feeling that he had been flying in a free wind and was resting among the tops of trees. The room faded out temporarily. But my name, if you would like to know, is Isidy, she said, still smiling. Miss Isidy, he stammered, making another attempt at the forms of worldly politeness. Not Miss Isidy, she laughed aloud merrily. It surely was the sound of wind and poplars. Isidy is my first name, so if you call me anything, you must call me that. The name was pure music in his ears, but though he blundered about in his memory to find his own, it had utterly vanished. For the life of him, he could not recollect what his friends called him. He stared a moment, vaguely wondering, almost beside himself with delight. No other girls he had known, yet heavens above, there were no longer any other girls. He had never known any other girl but this one. Here was his universe, framed in a green dress, with a voice of sea and wind, eyes like the sun and movements of bending grasses, all else was mere shadow and fantasy. For the first time in his existence he was alive, and knew that he was alive. I was sure that you would come to me, she was saying. You couldn't help yourself. Her eyes were always on his face. I was afraid at first, but your thoughts... She interrupted softly. Your thoughts were up here with me all the time. You knew that, he cried, delighted. I felt them, she replied simply. They, you, kept me company, for I have been alone here all the evening. I know no one else here, yet. Her words amazed him. He was just going to ask who the tall dark man was when he saw that she was rising to her feet and that she wanted to dance. But my, but my heart, he stammered. It won't hurt your poor heart to dance with me, you know, she laughed. You may trust me. I shall know how to take care of it. Brown felt simply ecstatic. It was too wonderful to be true. It was impossible, this meeting in London at an ordinary dull dance in the twentieth century. He would wake up presently from a dream of silver and gold. Yet he felt, even then, that she was drawing his arm around her waist for the dance, and with that first magical touch, he almost lost consciousness and passed with her into a state of pure spirit. It puzzled him for a moment how they reached the floor so quickly and found themselves among the whirling couples. He had no recollection of coming down the stairs. But meanwhile he was dancing on wings, and the girl in green beside him seemed to fly, too, and as he pressed her to his heart he found it impossible to think of anything else in the world but that, that, and his astounding happiness. And the music was within them rather than without. Indeed, they seemed to make their own music out of their swift, swirling movements, for it never ceased and he never grew tired. His heart had ceased to pain him. Other curious things happened too, but he hardly noticed them, or rather they no longer seemed strange. In that crowded ballroom they never once touched other people. His partner required no steering. She made no sound. Then he suddenly realized that his own feet made no sound either. They skimmed the floor with noiseless feet like spirits, dancing. No one else appeared to take the least notice of them. Most of the faces seemed indeed strange to him now, as though he had not seen them before. But once or twice he could have sworn that he passed couples who were dancing almost as happily and lightly as themselves. Couples he had known in years past. Couples who were dead. Gradually the room emptied of its original comers, and others filled their places, silently, with airy, graceful movements and happy faces, till the whole floor at length was covered with the soundless feet and whirling forms of those who had already left the world. 
and as the artificial light faded away, there came in its place a soft white light that filled the room with beauty and made all the faces look radiant. And once, as they skimmed past a mirror, he saw that the girl dancing beside him was not there, that he seemed to be dancing alone, clasping no one. Yet when he glanced down, there was her magical face at his shoulder, and he felt her little form pressing up against him. Such dancing, too, he had never even dreamed about, for it was like swinging with the treetops in the wind. Then they danced further out, ever swifter and swifter, past the shadows beneath the gallery, under the motionless hanging flags, and out into the night. The walls were behind them, they were off their feet, and the wind was in their hair. They were rising, rising, rising toward the stars. He felt the cool air of the open sky on his cheeks, and when he looked down, as they cleared the summit of the dark-lying hills, he saw that Isidy had melted away into himself, and they had become one being. And he knew then that his heart would never pain him again on earth, or cause him to fear for any of his beloved dreams. But the manager of that hateful office only knew two days later why Brown had not shown up to his desk, nor sent any word to explain his absence. He read it in the paper, how he had dropped dead at a dance, suddenly stricken by heart disease. It happened just before two o'clock in the morning. Well, thought the manager, he's no loss to us anyhow. He had no real business instincts. Smith will do his work much better and for less money, too.'